welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Aaron. Uh, Evan? Oh, that's right. Evan's gone. Sorry, listeners. It's just me today. But I'm excited to be able to walk you through this week's reading of our Let's Read the Bible podcast. This is a podcast where if you're new to it, we read the Bible together every year and we talk about what I learned today, specifically along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, so you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website at grove.church. If you are jumping in today, we are going to be starting on day 295. If you have questions along the way, I would love for you to send me an email at infogrove.church. You can put the subject line, a podcast question, and I'll make sure that we take time over the weeks to come and answer those questions as much as we can week over week at the end of each podcast. Uh, You could also direct message the Grove Church on social media, Instagram and social or and Facebook. A handle for our Grove Church is the Grove CH. Make sure to put a subject, uh, like a subject heading. It's a podcast question. We'll get them there too. And if you're wondering why it's just my voice today, Evan is technically on vacation. And as you well know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, we are not perfect people. And so we don't always get things right. And so we actually ran into a couple snacks and issues. We were going to have a guest podcast host. His name's Nathan, who's not new to the podcast. He actually hosted in my absence a few weeks back, but uh, we ran into sending him the wrong uh, the wrong passages for this week's reading. And because we want to make sure that we re- meet our deadlines, I just told Evan, enjoy vacation. I told Nathan, don't worry about the prep because I know it's going to take you longer than you have time to be able to record for this week, and I'll just take it all. So today, listeners, you get to hear my voice walk through the entire week's reading. So hopefully I can keep you entertained, and I can keep you engaged, and you can hear uh, some of my thoughts along the way. And I'm going to be honest with you, the way that I'm kind of going to tackle it is to give us an overview of what's happening, but also let you loop you in to some of the highlights that I had as I was reading this week's reading for this podcast. Personally, I'm going to let you share some of the thoughts that I have as well. And so but without further ado, we're going to jump into the first portion of our reading, which is jumping into the book of Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16, where we jump back into Jesus sharing parables. This parable specifically is about the vineyard workers. In essence, Jesus tells a parable about a a vineyard owner who wants to go and hire labor and help to make sure that his vineyard is taken care of. He starts out early in the morning, finds a couple workers, and promises them a a day's wage, a denarius, uh, for the work to be completed by the end of day. And so he hires them. They agree to terms. He brings them into his field. Then the worker, the vineyard owner goes back out and realizes, man, there's more workers out here. Let's bring them in as well. So he goes out at three or four different times throughout the day, one even towards the end of the day, and he lines them up last to first. So the people who showed up first get paid first and they get a full denarius, which is a full day's wage. And it says that the first workers were seeing this happen. So they were actually kind of excited thinking, hey, we're going to get more than we actually agreed for. Which in our, you know, worldly human point of view, yeah, that would be, that would seem fair, right? You're there all day. You work just as hard. The one who, you work harder than and longer than the one who was there at the end of the day. Uh, but as it comes to the the workers who were first hired, they get paid the same amount of wages and they get upset about it. And so they kind of, they don't make a fuss about it, but they're like, well, wait a minute. Why are they getting paid a full wage, the same wage that we got paid when we've been here all day? And the vineyard owner uh, responds back, didn't we agree to terms on this? This is what we agreed upon, is I was going to pay you for this. 
Uh, and there's this line in verse 15 that I think is really, really incredible. Uh, because you see that this picture is a picture of the kingdom. You're going to find in this week's reading that there is this anticipation and this coming urgency as Jesus is nearing the end of his life, nearing his death and resurrection. You're going to see and sense this urgency, but also this growing frustration for the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders. And so as we progress through this week's reading, you're going to find at the end of our reading, we're ending with this separating of the sheep and the goats. And so if you're part and if you're part of the Grove Church family, you would have heard a portion of this that Matthew chapter 25 passage in our son message on Sunday from Pastor Nick. But all that to say, in verse 15 it says this. It says, "Are you jealous because I'm so generous?" And I think that's such I, I highlight that in my Bible and it's like, "Lord, forgive me in the moments where I get jealous because you're so generous." And and it is a picture of the kingdom. It is a picture of these workers who have been brought in at the last moment to enjoy the full benefit of of the wage in in the parable, but it is a kingdom-minded filter. And so there is something significant about this passage that I think was really, really incredible. Uh, But that line, when I was reading, it really challenged me and really stuck out to me. It's, are you jealous because I'm so generous? And and man, what a shot to the heart where I had to process through and ask God, okay, help me to celebrate your generosity and not become bitter or jealous because of your generosity to others. Uh, so that's Matthew. That's where we launch into this week's reading, Matthew chapter 20. We'll then pick up a short sidebar as Jesus is walking back to Jerusalem with his uh, closest followers. And, and it, it's this moment where he predicts his death for the third time, his coming death. He Again, he's seeing Jerusalem. They're heading back to Jerusalem. He knows that as he goes to Jerusalem, there's a point where he will die and uh, be crucified and suffer a brutal death. And so in, Ma- in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, as well as Matthew 20, 17 to 19, and Luke 18, 31 to 34, we see this prediction of the coming death and resurrection that Jesus will allude to. Uh, in Luke chapter 18, 31 to 34, says this, it says, then he took the 12 aside and told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, and spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. And it says, they understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They still don't fully comprehend what's coming, but you see this anticipation. Jesus is trying to prepare his followers, those closest to him, about coming judgment, his coming death, his resurrection. It's it's, And you see this play out again in the Synoptic Gospels. We read then in Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45, as well as Matthew 20 to 24, we see this James and John tension moment, which is actually kind of comical today. Uh, but I have to be honest with you, there's times where I was, I am James or I'm John in this passage too. Uh, but the idea here is that James and, and John are either jockeying for a position to sit at Jesus' right hand once Jesus sits down on his throne. They're expecting a tangible kingdom, a physical kingdom. They expect him to be the king, the sovereign king. And and so they have this conversation, Mark chapter 10 documents this conversation about who, asking Jesus to sit at his right hand and his left hand. Uh, in Matthew 20 to 20 to 34, this is what we get here regard, regarding this passage. And there's also a, a portion of um, uh, a miracle of blind man as they leave Jericho. They see this moment. Um, but in Matthew 20 to 34, it says this, Matthew 20 verses 20 to 34, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, also known as Sons of Thunder, by the way, says she knelt down to ask him for something. 
What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said, that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And he's looking at the the sons that here, and they say, we are able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom it has been prepared for by my father. Then it says, when the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, so, I mean, imagine this for a minute. You're walking with Jesus. You're part of the 12. And then all of a sudden you see James and John having this conversation with Jesus, whether it was his mom who was asking, which is what the book of Mark documents. So his mom is asking. So his mom is present. She's part of the the entourage that's following Jesus around with the 12 disciples, part of the women that are in the group, uh, or they're just in town. And so she's present with with them, saying hi to them. And so she's begging Jesus, asking Jesus in this moment, which I would I would lean more towards that position where she is um, at, at home, they're visiting home. Uh, and so she's close and she's maybe visiting her sons when he's around Jesus and has this conversation. So the 12 disciples see this and they get frustrated. And it says, that they get frustrated with the two brothers, they get indignant with the two brothers. And then verse 25, it says, Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there's this moment where Jesus is teaching them and elevating the conversation where he's saying, listen, it's not about position, it's about serving. And, and that's, the, that's the clarity Jesus brings about the kingdom principle, about the reality that he's calling his disciples to. It's not about taking the seats of honor, it's about taking the seats of low posture, of low humility, because we're here to serve and serve others. And there is something that translates for us today, like where we come in and we love the accolades and we love the recognition and we love the fame or we love the status that we get in the world as we know it. Those are not kingdom principles to live by. And so Jesus is calling that out among his disciples. And I would say he's also calling it out among us today in 2023 as well. Uh, We do get this moment that as they were leaving Jericho, that a large crowd was following them. There were two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And I believe Evan highlighted this last week where he just talked about a, a song by Ghost Ship called Son of David. Um, it's pretty incredible. It's a good song. Um, but it's it, there was this incredible miracle that we see play out in the, in the Synoptic Gospels in this portion. After this, they're leaving. There's two blind men that are healed. Uh, the Mark account in chapter 10, verse 46 to 52, only highlights Bartimaeus, the blind man, uh, which just goes to show that he was probably known by name, either by Mark or some of the individuals Mark was interviewing about or dialoguing about, having the witness accounts about, so they knew Bartimaeus. Um, and Luke, the doctor, who's he's, he's taking accounts and, and putting together the conversation, he realizes that he doesn't have the name, so he just says it's a blind man, blind man sitting by. Um, whatever the case is, they're not contradictory. I want to be clear about this, but there are, uh, but it is a blind man or two have been healed in this moment. We see in the book of Matthew that it's two blind men that are healed and they cry out. And it's an incredible moment where the crowd is try- telling them to be quiet. The crowd is trying to shush them to keep them cast aside. And Jesus hears them and then calls them over and says, what can I do for you? And he, they say, we want to see. And so he heals them. They can see it's an incredible, powerful, miraculous moment. Uh, and one I would love to have been a part of to see. 
Uh, we shift then into Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 27. This is where we hear the story of Zacchaeus, uh, as well as a parable that that will play out here in a little bit that we'll, we'll get to, um, where it's handing over portions of money. Uh, this is comparable to the parable of the talents, which we actually are also going to read this week. And so they're, they're pretty much the same story. Uh, whether or not they're the same exact parable Jesus teaches, I, I can't say yes or no to that, but there's a lot of similarities to it. And Jesus, these are different accounts of Jesus' teaching, so um, it, it's applicable and able to understand there. Uh, but the story of, uh, of Zacchaeus uh, is a pretty significant one, too, because they're actually in this moment. Zacchaeus is a short man. He's, a, he's rejected. He's a tax collector, which means that we, I've already discussed in we, previous weeks that tax collectors had their own. Uh, social status where you've got prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. They were in, they were lower, they were perceived as a lower uh, social status than even the, a, a typical sinner. And so it's a pretty significant thing when Jesus stops at a sycamore fig tree. Um, the reality is it probably is, it, it's the, the, what really probably happened here is Jesus entered in one side of the city, exited the other side of the city, and that's where he encountered Zacchaeus, and then stops at the tree, sees Zacchaeus, and the sycamore fig trees in in the Middle East in Israel, they're very thick trees. They're very climbable, but they're very thick tree, trees. So it's not the easiest thing in the world to see. So Jesus stops, calls down Zacchaeus, says, I must come into your house. So they actually go back into the city where Jesus just exited. And that's where Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is ha, exp, explains faith, implies faith in Christ, says, I'm going to return back what I've taken and then pay it back fourfold. Uh, which is a pretty significant amount of money that he's promising to pay back and to give back because he's met the Savior. He's met and he's found his fulfillment and his his everything. Jesus is enough. He doesn't need all the wealth and the prosperity that he has that he robbed his own people of. Um, and so there's this incredible moment that we see with Jesus encountering Zacchaeus. Um, and and after that portion of Luke chapter 19, we'll then get the parable of the nobleman who, hand, who goes on a trip hands over portions of money, comes back, two of his servants did something with the money. They were rewarded uh, to the same amount that they were originally given. Uh, But then the one servant was knew him to be harsh and knew him to be a a mean, angry man. And he he reaped where he didn't sow. And he gets rebuked by the master. He says, you could have at least put it in the bank to get interest gets rebuked by the master, takes the, the 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 amount of money that he was given, hands it off to the one who had the most, and then he's kicked out of the city. And it says this idea of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is, again, a kingdom principle where it is, we are all given and called to be given talents. We're given uh, uh, resources that we're called to be stewards of, gifts, time, talent, all of those things. Uh, and we're going to be held accountable for what, whether we invest them into the kingdom purposes or we reject them entirely. Um, and so there is this picture that plays out in this parable of the nobleman that Jesus is making a point. Um, we shift over into the book of Mark, as well as Matthew uh, and John, where we have this uh, picture of a dinner at Simon the leper's house is what we're told in, chap- in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is anointed by a woman. Uh, and we don't know much about this woman in the Mark account. It did say that in Mark chapter 14, 3 through 9, that the disciples saw this and became indignant. Uh, so I'm going to read this because I actually want to compare this to the John account because the John account gives us a whole lot more information. But I want us to see those two accounts side by side. So it says this in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. 
It says, while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You you always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. What she has done, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In Matthew chapter 26, 6 through 13, it's a very similar account. We find that it's the disciples who were indignant about the perfume being poured out. But in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, I want you to hear the added information. For those of you who are new to reading the Gospels, the book of John is written by one of Jesus' disciples, um, the beloved disciples, what he calls himself. This is John, uh, James's br- little brother. He is the youngest of the disciples, and he is, I mean, he is the one that Jesus loved. There is this close bond that we see in the book of John, but also in the Gospels, that Jesus has with John, his disciple. And so John has more insider information as he's recounting this story specifically in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. So I want you to hear, after hearing the Mark passage and hearing the the, the basic overview, here's what John says about the same, the same uh, situation, the same content in context. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one who Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner to him for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of perfume. Now remember, they're at Simon the leper's house. So Simon the leper is one of the lepers that Jesus healed. Lazarus is, is a close friend. Mary and Martha are her, her sister, his sisters. And they're all having dinner together with the 12 disciples. And, and, it, and it says Martha's serving them. Lazarus is there. And it says, then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus's feet, wiped his and wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Then one of the disciples, so we know it's Mary, who's this woman, who took this very expensive perfume to anoint Jesus his feet and wipe his feet with her hair. And then it says one of the disciples. So in Matthew, we get some there were indignant. In Mark, I think it was Mark. Maybe it was the opposite. Sorry if I read that. Yeah. So Mark, we get the picture that some there were indignant. Matthew tells us it was the disciples. But John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot. And then in parentheses, it says, who was about to betray him said, why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this. Again, this is John's insight. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of what was put in it. Jesus answered her, Lay, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So in this encounter and in this moment, we get this very deep personal contact of what's going on by John. So it's not just a brief overview of this of this unknown woman, but it is Mary who's pouring this. And it's such a this is such a powerfully 
personal glimpse into the life of Jesus with his closest friends and his disciples. And then you also get Judas, and you get some of the insight the disciples knew about Judas. And it probably was in hindsight, they understood some of these things. So the gospel account is being written after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the death of Judas Iscariot. And so there is some of this revelation that we're getting of, but it is such an incredible comparison as we're reading. And I I don't know if I've ever read them back to back to back before, like I did this last week as I was reading for the podcast. And I just thought it was such an incredible progression of insight and information regarding this very deeply personal and powerful moment in the life of Jesus that I thought was really interesting to watch and, and see play out. From here, we shift into Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, this, a similar account in Matthew chapter 21, 1 through 11, as well as Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40, which I want to read a portion of that. Uh, but this is just, this details the arrival of Jesus, where he arrives on the colt of a donkey, and every account has a similar in, in story where they're getting ready to prepare for Passover. Uh, the disciples ask him, what should we do? Um, Actually, that's not true. I'm sorry. I'm jumping ahead. Uh, but they, Jesus tells them to go in and find a colt tied there. If the owner comes out and says, what are you doing? Just say that the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. And so this is like Jesus's arrival. This is a pretty significant thing where Jesus is revealing publicly and, and identifying publicly as the coming King, as the coming Messiah. And, and it says that this is a moment where Jesus arrives, those blankets thrown down, palm fronds are thrown down. We hear... Um, the, 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 the phrase that many of us have heard if we've been in church for a long time, but the idea of Hosanna to the Lord in the highest, Hosanna, they're waving their palm fronds. Hosanna is a victory cry. Uh, it's a it's a shout of victory. It's a, in essence, what's happening there is they're laying down the palm fronds and they're saying glory to God in the highest. He is the, he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord. He is the victor. He is going to reign and usher in his kingdom. So this is a pretty significant thing and moment happening in the Jewish world because they've been waiting for Messiah to arrive. And this is the closest that they've gotten so far. And the Luke account, I want to read this because it's pretty significant um, to, to hear. And I, again, it's just part of my daily readings, whereas I'm reading through, these are things standing out to me too. Uh, but he says, when he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the, at the place called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you as you enter it. You will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So again, I've already kind of set this context up, but it's building to this point that I think is so crazy cool. It says, so those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along the way, they were spreading their clothes on the road. This is the crowds of people and the disciples themselves. It says, Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to sing, praise, or sing, began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. So it's this massive celebration. It's this massive worshiping moment. And, and they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And then some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because the Pharisees didn't believe he was who he says he was. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And they knew that what was happening was only true of the coming Messiah, that this was biblically what was going to happen when the coming Messiah was there. And so Jesus told them, because this is such a divine and powerful moment, Jesus answered them, 
I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And I think that's so powerful and so amazing to consider and think about because the reality is if they were to be quiet, there would have been rocks singing and shouting out because Jesus is arriving in full power, in full might, and full majesty on the, the human side of his divinity. And it's such a significantly supernatural thing that if nobody was shouting out praises and rejoicing uh, and praising God because of what was happening, that the stones would have cried out. We know that this is possible because gee, God used a donkey to speak and bring direction to Balaam when he was riding the donkey and not seeing the angel standing with the sword drawn. And so this is such an incredible thing that I just think when I was reading, I was like, oh my goodness, Lord. This is so divine. This is so powerful. This is supernatural in its moment. And I think it was pretty remarkable uh, to just stop and think about that as you're reading of this week. It's just the significance of that statement alone. I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. And I just love it. I think it's so incredible and so fun to read. Um, we then read in John 12, verses 12 through 19, that the crowd continues to testify, and it says that they were with Jesus since Lazarus. Um, so they came and they 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 heard about Lazarus. They saw Lazarus come back from the dead. They've been following Jesus ever since. And so there's just this significant moment of testifying to the goodness and faithfulness of Christ. We get this in other moment in John cha- or Luke chapter 19, 41 to 40, and it says this. It says, as he approached the city and saw the city, he wept for it saying, if you knew this day, that would bring peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God had visited you. You see this moment of emotion where Jesus is is drawn to tears because he knows what's coming. He knows that the people of Jerusalem have rejected him. They, he knows that they, are, they have turned to the, the Roman government, that they're turning to religious leaders and standards of uh, righteousness that are, not, that are rooted in works and what they can accomplish. They're completely missing the power and the truth of who Jesus is. And you see him drawn to emotion. And again, I said it at the top of the podcast, but there's this moment of drawing and anticipation of Jesus' coming death, and you're going to see it pick up in its urgency, and you're going to see it pick up in Jesus's uh, verbiage and frustration towards the Pharisees and religious leaders. Uh, continuing John chapter 12, verses 20 to 50, we have this moment where Gre- the Greeks are seeking after Jesus, which then leads Jesus into the discourse on his death. He says this in the midst of that discourse. He says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven came and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, the voice came not for me, but for you. Now it is the judgment of this world, but the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, I am lifted up from the earth and I will draw all people to myself He said this, excuse me, he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law of the, from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus answered, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. When you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. Jesus said this and then went away and hid from them. 
So you see this discourse on his death. You see then the conversation about the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. And then we get this really sad note in verses 42 to 43. Sorry about that. I need to drink some water there. But you get this really sad note in verses 42 to 43. It says, nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers, and but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. So there are many Pharise- or Jews and Pharisees that believed in Jesus, but they didn't confess him because they didn't want to be banned from the synagogue. They understood the tension, and they understood that if they say yes to Jesus, that means they're going to lose all of their uh, all of their ability to be part of the Pharisee and the, and the religious group. And they, so they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And I think it's just such a sad note to even think about today where like, I, I remember writing in my Bible, Lord, where do I love the praise of man more than I love the praise of you? And, and it's a very sobering thought that they believed in Jesus. They actually were buying into what he was who he was and what he came to do, but because they were more worried about losing their position and losing their access, that they rejected the confession of of truth. And so that's it was a re, it's a really sad piece to read um, and to realize. We also get this in verses forty four to fifty. It says, "Jesus cried out, the one who believes in me, not believes not in me, but in him who sent me, and the one who sees me sees him who sent me." I have come as a light to the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive me, my sayings has this, has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And I thought it was interesting to see that Jesus says in verse 46, uh, sorry, in verse in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and doesn't keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this goes back to John 3, 17, where I really do think it's significant because in this moment, Jesus is pausing judgment because he's trying to draw all men unto him. He's trying to let the truth and the fulfillment of the word reveal and enlighten their lives and where the Holy Spirit can illuminate the truth so they may be drawn into salvation. And then he alludes to judgment comes on the last day based upon the sayings of God's word. Uh, And it says, the word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. To the one who rejects me doesn't receive my sayings, has this as his judge, that the word I've spoken. So there is still coming judgment and we are held accountable to to how we respond to the words of Jesus to the truth, the word of God that is fulfilled in the in, in the person of Jesus Christ, and so it was a very significant thing that I, I picked up on this time reading it. Is just the fact that Jesus says, I, "I'm not judging you. I'm actually I came to, to save the world, and the truth of the gospel is more powerful." But I will say this: at the end of the day, when you stand before God, there is judgment based upon how you responded to my world, my word and the truth of who I am. And that's pretty significant that you and I, as followers of Jesus, probably need to walk in, in alignment with this truth when it's really easy to judge, when it's really easy to sit in a, a, a seat of criticism and judgment and say, well, you're you're not living righteously. You're going to go to hell. But Jesus himself said that I came not to not to judge, but to save the world. 
So it's our jobs as Christians to understand this judgment that is coming, but to live in the love and the truth and the hope of who Jesus is. It's a full measure of grace, and it's a full measure of truth that's anchored to the person of Jesus, the love of Christ. I thought that was really significant to read. Um, We get in Mark chapter 11 and in Matthew chapter 21, uh, it's the story about the fig tree being cursed, uh, as well as this this little uh, sidebar in Matthew Uh, talking about faith and not doubting. I'm going to read this whole portion for a second. It says this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 to 22. It says, early in the morning as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. Now the passage of Mark does not say it withered at once. It has a later uh, passage of scripture that we'll we'll actually going to come to in a couple passages that refers to the fig tree withering. Again, I'm going to highlight this because I think it's important. This is not a contradiction. Uh, it's just a different account that it Matthew is taking the entirety of the account of the fig tree being cursed and withering and putting in the same moment. And Mark is taking the fig tree withering and and putting it in a different, a, a day or two later. And either way, the fig tree withering that quickly would be amazing. The disciples either way would be amazed. And so it may not, it may not, when it says it once, we think instantly, uh, but it's not always that case. Like when they say it once, it could it's it's after a short time. It withered faster than it should have ever withered. This is a miraculous moment either way. Uh, so they're not contradictory. They're just different different perspectives and account and accounts. Uh, but it says this that in verse twenty it says when the disciples saw it, they were amazed and said, "How did the fig tree wither so quickly?" Jesus answered them, "Truly I tell you, if you have the faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what the, was done to this fig tree, but even so you can tell the mountain to be lifted up and thrown to the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer." So it's a really significant moment where Jesus is saying, "This is this is like small potatoes. I could, you could do this. You could even do something greater than this with the mountain. All you have to do is believe and ask for in prayer, and it will happen to you." Then we get a very familiar passage for many of us about Jesus clearing the temple. There's all sorts of memes and gifts out there about Jesus with a whip chasing out all the sellers. Uh, and Jesus is frustrated. This is not what the temple is intended to be for. Uh, he's chasing out those who are selling items in the, the, the outer courts. In essence, they were selling food, animals for sacrifice. They were selling grain for sacrifice so that way people could uh, accomplish the Passover requirements for for animal sacrifice for the temple sacrifices. But what's happening here is it became a den of robbers where they were upcharging and being ridiculous. They were jacking the price of everything up so they could drive a profit, not so they could help provide uh, the ability for God's people to offer sacrifices as God intended or God directed from the law of Moses. So that's why he's chasing everybody out. We have this moment in the Matthew account that adds that the children were shouting in the temple. It says this, Uh, About the whole account, it says, Jesus went to the temple and threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to see him in the temple and he healed them. So it's pretty significant. He chases out the, all those who are selling, the blind and the lame are no easier. They go to the temple. He heals them in the temple. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you ever, have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them, went out of the cities of Bethany and spent the night there. So it's a significant moment. Again, it's, it's this coming arrival 
to his final destination in Jerusalem to face his death and resurrection, but he's growing more um, indignant and righteously angry and frustrated with the, the Pharisees and the acts of the Pharisees. We then, in the in the reading plan, will shift back to Mark to get um, the fig tree sighting being withered. We have this faith ex- exhortation like he, he gave us in the Matthew account. Um, he goes back into Jerusalem in this moment in Mark chapter 11. He's questioned by the chief priest, then he's asked this question. It says this in cha- Mark chapter 11. Uh, go, I'll go back to the very beginning of this passage. It says, Early in the morning as they pa- were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to him, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says this mountain, be lifted up, thrown into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes that it, what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everyone, everything you pray for and ask for, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive your wrongdoing. It says, they came to Jerusalem again, and as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And I love this exchange because Jesus puts them right in their place. It says, "Who?" and they're asking him, who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we, and he said, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that Jesus was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So I just think it's funny that Jesus caught them right in their own little trap and was able to then put the 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 weight and the... He put them back in their place in essence, and it was kind of funny to read and see that happen. So yeah, I just thought it'd be funny to take a moment to read that because Jesus answered a question with a question and they didn't answer his question, so he didn't answer their question, uh, but puts them in their place. And that's and that's what Jesus would have done. Uh, we see in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, it's a parable that Jesus teaches about a man who has two sons who, who were told to go to work. It says this, says, what do you think? A man has two sons. He went, to, he went to the first and said, my son, go to work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But he later, he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two sons did his father's will? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes didn't be- or did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe him. And it's this, it is this moment where Jesus is drawing tension with those who say that they believe the truth, but they're not doing anything with it. They say they know and understand what God intended through the book of Moses, through the law, through the prophets, but they're not doing anything with it. With John the Baptist, they're not doing anything with it. But then you've got individuals like tax, collector, tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners who at first are not living for truth or grace, but they catch wind of it and then they return and they they do what's right. They respond to Jesus and they and they trust in him and believe and live their lives based upon him. And they're entering eternity. So Jesus is is putting uh, the, the 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 audience in this moment in their place, saying, "Do what you know you should do." And those, there's grace for those who don't do and who say no at first, but they return and do what they're supposed to do. Uh, and so it's a pretty significant little 
um, story and, and an analogy. And it's funny because I, as a, I remember as a, a student leader when I was in youth ministry years ago, decades ago, that my youth pastor gave me a hard time one day because he said, hey, will you go do this? And I told I would tell him no all the time. And it's sarcasm, obviously. I grew up in a very sarcastic family. If you didn't know that, it's true. But I would I would say no, but I'd still go do it. And and it why? Because I knew what the right thing to do was. And and but it was. I and so he I remember him quoting this story to me at one point. And I was just like, man, that's kind of true. I'm the I'm the first one who said no, but I do it anyways. I should just say yes and and not and not be so sarcastic. And so it was kind of a pointed thing that my youth pastor said, but this story has always been ingrained in my head because of that moment. Uh, but it is doing what you're supposed to do. And and at times we don't do what we're supposed to do. We don't do what we want to do, but there's grace. And when we recognize what's true and we do it anyways, there's acceptance and belonging there. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verses one through two, we see a parable of leased property to tenant farmers where the 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 tenant farmer the own or no sorry the owner of the farm has leased it out to tenants and after harvest season he sends some servants to go pick up his portion of the produce and it says that the tenant farmers uh, beat them up and sent them away he sent and then the owner sent more uh, servants then they progressively got more beat and more humiliated and then killed and then finally he sent his son saying oh they'll respect my son and they send they send the son he sends his son and the son shows up and the the tenants are like hey this is the heir to the property let's kill him because then the then the inheritance is ours so they take his son out they beat him and they kill him and and we get a parallel similar account in Matthew chapter 21 we also get a parallel similar similar account in Luke chapter 19 or 20 verses 9 through 19 and it is this moment where Jesus is telling them this passages and he has this, this description, and I'm just going to read verses 42 to 46 here of, of the Matthew passage to give us kind of a wrap-up to what's, what's really Jesus, what really Jesus is implying here. It says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing fruit. Whoever fails on this stone will be broken into pieces, but whoever whoever fall whoever it falls on will shatter. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they many feared the crowd because the people had regarded him as a prophet. And so Jesus tells this parable, and the Pharisees and religious leaders know he's talking about us. We are the tenants that are that are going to kill the son. He is rebuking us. We don't like it. Let's get rid of him and kill him. In essence, they do, they're do. they plotting to do exactly what the, the tenants of the farmer in the parable did. Uh, and so it's kind of a, a very pointed statement that is, is pretty significant in this moment that we get in the Synoptic Gospels here. Um, we then shift into Matthew where there's only a one... Um, it's the only passage, or the only Matthew's the only book that t- covers the, the wedding banquet uh, passage and story here where... It's there's a wedding banquet and the uh, the the groom and the the one throwing the wedding invites all of these people of status and wealth and uh, all of them reject it and come up with the reason reasons and excuses why they can't make it and so the uh, the owner the 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 party host gets frustrated and then he says okay let's go out into the city and and get everybody else and bring them in and this is what happens I'm going to read verses eight through fourteen. In Matthew chapter 22, he says, once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to read the whole passage, 1 through 14. My apologies. 
It says, Jesus spoke to him in parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those who invited uh, to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent our other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle and have, have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away. One to his own farm, one to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. Uh, he sent the, out the troops, killed those murderer, murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to the where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out of, on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came to, in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for the wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. And so there is this moment where this parable again is alluding to the kingdom, the future of eternity, where there is a rejection of those who reject his invitation to be to belong to the great banquet, the wedding banquet, the arrival of the Messiah, the groom with the church, his bride. There's going to be a rejection. And then there's going to be a separation. And then there's it says that there's a man who shows up who's not dressed in wedding gear. In other words, he doesn't belong there. He wasn't invited there. He he and so he's going to be removed. And and so that's the challenge. And that's why it says for many are invited, but few are chosen, is because those who are chosen are the ones who accept the invitation and and make it a priority to be there. And so they would have been dressed and given the right attire to show that they're worthy of being there. And so Jesus is teaching about this this parable, the wedding banquet. Um, and to allude again to the kingdom, which obviously is the majority of the parables that he's teaching anyways. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, is is we see the synoptic accounts in Matthew 22, 15 to 22 as well, as Luke 20 to 26, uh, where this idea of paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus is called out and questioned by religious leaders, um, by the tax collectors, and says, hey, wh- what is what what does the law say? Do we, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And so Jesus knows what they are up to. Uh, he then challenges them and says, why, why are you asking me these questions? Why are you trying to trap me? He says, give me a coin. And he says, whose image is on the coin? And they all say Caesar's. And he, Jesus just turns back to him and says, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and give to God's what is God's. And it's this beautiful tension of give to Caesar's the coins that, he's, that carry his image and give to God that which carries his image, which news alert, spoiler alert, whatever you want to call it, you and I carry his image. So in essence, he's saying, surrender your lives to God because those are his. He created you. So surrender, give up control back to God. And that's the tension he's creating in this passage when it comes to paying taxes to Caesar. And it's pretty it's pretty important and even relevant for us today to consider what does it mean for me to give my life and surrender my life to God because I carry his image. And so do my neighbors and so do the people even that I have problems with and issues with. They all carry God's image and it's important to to remember, to reflect, and to care deeply about them as well. In Mark chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, we get uh, another synoptic account that details um, this idea of marriage and eternity. So we have some Sadducees who actually don't believe in the resurrection uh, after the dead. So they come to Jesus again, they're trying to trap him. This is where, again, you see the, the Sadducees are kind of in cahoots with the Pharisees. We've already talked about that a little bit on the podcast with Evan. 
but we see this this moment where it's like, hey, uh, Jesus, here's the situation. Can you help give us some wisdom? Uh, and they say, hey, so there is a man who married a woman, uh, and before she was able to have any kids to carry on the, the family name, he died. And so the law says that his brother should then marry his wife so that way she can continue on the line of the older brother. But he died before that was able to happen. And then the next brother was supposed to do that for his set of brothers. And then he dies all the way to the seventh brother. So when they get when they go into eternity, who uh, who who will she be married to? And it's just this discourse of Jesus explaining in, in eternity, when we stand before God and we're in heaven, there is a different relational dynamic between all of God's people. And marriage is not something that carries into, excuse me, carries into eternity like we understand marriage today. Because at this point, when we arrive in eternity, we become the bride of Christ. Like there is the relational covenant is no longer between human humanity. It's between us and God. And so Jesus is just calling them out for, hey, you say you're talking about eternity, but you don't even believe in the resurrection. You don't even believe in, in, in eternity, yet you're trying to trap me. So just stop. And so again, he is uh, continuing to, to repute um, and respond in, in a very gracious but challenging way that is really important uh, because truth prevails. And, and the people who are trying to trap him are just trying to prove him wrong and discredit him and they're distracting from the gospel. They're distracting from what Jesus came to do, which is to save the world from sin. Uh, so we get that as we uh, kind of ha- hit the halfway point of not just our podcast, but our week and uh, reading. We hear this discourse in Mark chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 22, and in Luke chapter 20, verses 27. Uh, so before we continue into the rest of our podcast episode and where Evan is going to share his thoughts, oh wait, he's not here again. Oh, nuts. Uh, just kidding. Uh, I do want to take a moment and just ask you to do me a favor. If you have a window and a moment of time, if, if this podcast has been something you've enjoyed over the last weeks, months, or years, I would love for you to pause right now and just do me a favor and take a moment, if you haven't yet, to leave a five-star review. Uh, we want the podcast to continue to grow and to continue to reach people and really help make a difference in people's walks with with faith in Christ, walk in, in our hearts. And I know Evan's not here, so I can say this, but our, our heart really is to help people become stronger and more capable followers of Jesus. It's not about us and our accolades and our recognition, but it is about uh, helping grow a community of people who are reading the Bible together and being encouraged and challenged and 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 developed in their understanding of faith and what it means to follow Jesus. Um, and so if you take a moment, leave a five-star review on Spotify specifically or Apple Podcasts or really whatever platform you listen on. Just take a moment, leave a five-star because every five-star review helps uh, helps get the word out, and we would love to grow this community. But if you leave the review in uh, a written review on Apple Podcasts, because you can leave a written review, uh, we'll take a moment and read it out loud on the podcast, much like I'm going to do f- today for Anna MJ J A N M I don't know A N A M J A twenty three. Uh, she said this. I found this podcast at the beginning of my college semester, and this has been a super beneficial in helping me understand the Old Testament readings assigned in my religious studies class. I appreciate the dedications you guys put into this podcast. Uh, so I just love that it's been able to be a good, re- solid resource for you. Uh, and I do think it's a lot of fun 
that it's able to help you in your collegiate studies as well. So thanks for taking time to leave a, a five-star review and a, and a written review. Uh, and thank you for helping us continue to grow the podcast. Uh, and don't forget to share it with people that could benefit from maybe some of the conversations. Again, we're no we're not perfect Bible scholars by any means, but Evan and I just have a deep passion for God's Word, uh, and we've really enjoyed the podcast this year so far. So we'd love for you to do that. Uh, so jumping back into the last few days of our reading this week, we're going to be in Mark chapter twenty or twelve verses twenty eight to thirty four. Uh, which deals with the most important commandment. There's also a parallel account that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 23, 23, no, 22, <laughs> 34 to 40. Uh, but I'm going to read the Mark account because I think it's it, it carries a few more highlights or a few more insights for us. It says this in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well. He said, he had asked him, which is the which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered him, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. This is a very significant passage in the Old Testament. Every Pharisee, every Jew, every everybody who was part of the original law of Moses or the history and the lineage of the people of God would know this passage as a very significant passage. Theologically, it is deep and rich, and I don't have the time to dive into it now, but we could take an entire podcast just on this passage alone that Jesus is referring to. So Jesus answered him, here is the most important. It says this, listen, O Israel, that Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he adds to it. Jesus says this, the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to them, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is a pretty significant statement. This is not normal. Jesus did not interact with this very often. And Jesus says this in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. And so I think it's really incredible just to he see a snapshot of this conversation that Jesus is having. And Mark details the account where there's a response that Jesus affirms and even softly kind of celebrates and says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You understand what I'm trying to communicate, what I'm trying to do. And it's one of the scribes that that catches on to this and says that. And so I think it's, it was pretty significant in that moment too. Um, in Mark chapter 12, in Matthew chapter 22, and in Luke chapter 20, the readings for the, this portion, uh, we see that Jesus taking a moment and teaching in the temple. Um, and in essence, it's, it's kind of a weird thing to a degree, but the, the Pharisees and religious leaders were anticipating this, a son of David to rule over them. They were looking at it from a, a, human, a human point of view, a human perspective, a tangible kingdom. And Jesus is trying to shift their paradigm. He's trying to shift their understanding of kingdom. And so in this conversation, he, he, he in essence just says, listen, if David called the Messiah Lord, how could he be a son of David? How can the Messiah be a son of David if David calls him Lord? David would not call the, the Lord Messiah the same Lord of his son. And so he, try, he kind of creates this this tension point to re-anchor and to shift their paradigm to understand the kingdom that Jesus and that the Messiah alludes to is a future kingdom that is not in the line, humanly speaking or tangibly speaking, 
but it's meant to be in a much bigger, a much greater kingdom that we kind of understand now a little bit where it's more future-esque because we're so far removed from this passage. But it is a moment where Jesus is bringing his trust and sight forward to himself, where in essence, Jesus is the better David, and he's the better king, and the better kingdom of God is coming than the kingdom of David. And so that's what Jesus is trying to do in this passage. Um, we get a we get a moment in, in Mark chapter 20, 12, we get a mo- that's similar in Matthew chapter 23, that we also see is similar uh, in Luke chapter 20, where Jesus is making the statement of beware of the scribes. And we're going to see in this moment that Jesus is beginning to shift the focus and rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees, challenging those following him not to be like them um, and to do what they say, but not what they do. Uh, and so we see this portion in, in Matthew chapter 12. I'm going to be reading quite a bit of, of the passages here because it is this, like I've said at the very beginning of the podcast, this growing anticipation. It really picks up steam at this point where you begin to see more direct hostility, which I think is pretty significant. Uh, but it says this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowd and said to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they teach. I remember underlining this in my Bible and putting in the notes and just writing, God, help me to practice what I preach. I don't want to be like the Pharisees who take a seat of honor and then preach a method, but I don't practice what I'm preaching because your word is truth and your word is life. And I want to be living in truth and living in the life. And so I remember writing that down as I read that because it's a very big deal. It's a very big statement that Jesus is making. And then he explains it. He says in verse four that they tie heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. They do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their, their flatteries and lengthen their tassels. The flatteries are like the, the stone tile type things that are on their robes that are supposed to remind them of the commandments and how to live righteously and lengthen their tassels, which is a sign of, of superiority and teacher and, and uh, authority. That's what I was looking for. It says they love the place at honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called a rabbi by people. But you are not to be called a rabbi because you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not called to be instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus is putting a compare and contrast statement in regards to the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, do what they say, but don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach, which I think is very significant in and of itself. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 39, we get the, the, the what are often referred to as the woes to the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, and it's just this, this, almost this, monologue of rebuke and lament where he's saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And because you shut the door to the kingdom is one of the things. He shut the door to the kingdom in people's faces and you don't go in or you don't allow others to go in either. He says, woe to you because you're, and these are my paraphrases, where your promises are empty and the oaths that you make are worthless. Uh, You give a tenth, but you neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness, where giving should be anchored Uh, and done without neglecting others. And so it's not just about giving a tenth of cumin or a tenth of your spices or uh, a tenth of what you have or your resources, but it should also be anchored to the idea of how do I walk in justice, love mercy, and be faithful towards others as well. 
Uh, he says, woe to you because the, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. He says, woe to you because of whitewashed tombs, which are beautiful on the outside, but is inside is full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so he's he's, paint, he's showing a picture where it would be very normal for tombs throughout Jerusalem and throughout the Middle East to be whitewashed with white, so that way it draws attention because they viewed um, dead bodies as defiled. And if you walked by them, they were unclean, so you would be defiled. And so it was whitewashed would be visible to see from a distance, so you know to keep your distance. But it also made them very beautiful. But inside was all the bones, and which then makes them unclean and defiled. And so Jesus saying, "You whitewash these tombs, but inside's full of of unclean uncleanliness. It's full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." So that's the comparison Jesus is making here. He then calls them snakes. He calls them broods of vipers. Um, have you escaped? Have you? How can you escape from being condemned to hell? Um, and is this moment that some some would say this is Jesus swearing and calling them names that, and and righteously so that they were? It, it appears in this moment Jesus fed up. Um, but there's more here. I actually would say he is wanting to reveal the truth that brings deliverance and freedom. And so he's frustrated with their ignorance and their blindness, and he's calling them out and getting attention. So there's this righteousness that comes out, just like when he flipped the temple. It's a very frustrated moment for him where he's very disappointed and frustrated with the Pharisees, with the scribes, because they're missing the point. And he's like, I've been here for so long. How can you still miss what what I'm trying to explain? And so it's very very heartbreaking to see this moment. It's also very uh, eye-opening to see this moment. Uh, But he is. He is He's getting fed up. He's like, I, I don't know. I'm not going to be here much longer. So you also get this sense of urgency. So it's all kind of uh, kind of melting together, and it's and it's being this deep expression of tension. We shift in this week's reading at this point to Mark chapter 12 verses 41 to 44, as well as Luke chapter 21 1 through 4, uh, and it is this this compare and contrast about the widow's might, which many of us may know that phrase. Um, from this passage, but it says this in Mark chapter 12. I'll read this passage. It says, Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny corns worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. For they all gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty, poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. And it was a very teaching moment, but at the same time, it's this widow who finds the fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone in the hope of of God. She puts all of her worth and all of her merit in him and him alone. And it is a very significant moment. We're also a very challenging moment of, I mean, I, I remember we're asking the question in, in just a prayerful moment of reflection, where am I holding back? Where am I not trusting you with everything? Where am I giving out of my surplus, but not giving out of my poverty. And it's it's not saying we have to sell all of our possessions and give it all freely and live on, on a, you know, women of prayer. But it is a very, it's a heart moment where I think it's very challenging for me to consider what am I withholding from God that I'm, that I'm seemingly not trusting him with, but the, because this widow put in everything, everything to live off of. She had total confidence in God as her provider, God as her caretaker. And I think that's pretty significant uh, to think about and consider. We see this uh, foretelling section where we shift uh, as we kind of come to the end of our reading. We still got a little bit to read 
but you see this foretelling of the coming of the end of the age. And and you see over the next few passages that we're going to read, it is this forward thinking beyond just death and resurrection, but the end of the age. Uh, and so Mark chapter 13, you get uh, the destruction of the temple predicted, you get signs of the end of the age, you get there's persecution coming, uh, and then you get this thing, the great tribulation, um, and it just it's it's just this picture of what's going to happen at the end of uh, before Jesus comes back. And so in Mark chapter thirteen verses twenty one to twenty three, it says, "Then if anyone tells you, see here is the Messiah, see there, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance." And so Jesus is taking a moment to not just prepare them for the destruction of the temple that's coming, for the signs of the end of the age, that there's going to be persecution, but he's also saying, hey, there's going to be moments where there's going to say, hey, the Messiah has arrived. Go, Let's go check it out. Let's go find it. And Jesus is saying, don't go, because there's going to be false prophets and false messiahs that are going to try and lure you away from the truth and worshiping them by doing signs and wonders. And he's saying, you must watch, you must be alert, you must remember everything I've told you because I'm telling you in advance. And he's he's preparing them to ex- and explaining to them over the next several passages that we're going to read about what that's going to look like. That's where the signs of the end times come. Uh, in Matthew chapter 24, 1 through 25, it's a similar account to the one we just read in Mark chapter 13. Uh, but there was a highlight that I that I thought was was pretty interesting and in, in, and challenging to consider uh, in verse 12 of the Matthew account, it says, because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. And I highlight this because it's it's this picture of lawlessness where they, they live to their own desires, people are going to live to their own ways, their own ideas, their own truths, and they're going to live lawlessly. They're not going to live to righteousness, they're not going to live to God's standard, to God's expectation, they're going to live the way they want to live. It says, the love of many will grow cold. And the moment we stop living for others, and the moment we stop living for Christ and modeling His love, it, our love grows cold, and we become all that matters. We, it's this American individualism that we're seeing play out, the cultural individualism in the world as we know it, this narcissism that is rooted and anchored into what, what do I want? I'm going to get mine. It's all about me. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to pursue my own wealth and my own version of things. And we see that play out. We see that happen. Uh, and we and the indicator here is when lawlessness multiplies, the love of many grows cold. And Jesus is the epitome of what it means to live full of love. And so it is this challenge for us as Christians today to be to be monitoring where is my love growing cold, so that way I can continue to live righteously according to truth. Uh, and the love growing cold is a really good recognition that we better stop, turn turn 180 degrees and walk the other way because we're not living in, in what God intended. We see a similar account in Luke chapter 21, as well as Mark chapter 13 continues to hit this tribulation reference um, that, I, that I think would be worth reading here. Um, and it says this in verse 24 to 31, it says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun would be darkened. Now, after that tribulation is... Where the false Messiah and the false prophets come, it continues this thought. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will not will be falling from the sky, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with a great power and glory. He will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, 
from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not certainly pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that's a very famous verse and very well-known verse that my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we have his words on display in scripture, but it is, it's foretelling of a time where not only the fall of Jerusalem plays where, and I'm not talking about exile like we talked about in the Old Testament, but I'm talking about the Roman government overcoming where the where Nero has this persecution against Christians. Um, it is it is an immediate foretelling of what's to come. And he even says, this generation will not certainly pass away until these things take place. But it's also the illusion of what's come. It's not illusion, sorry. It's a, a, it's a foretelling of the coming end of age where Jesus will show up and, and reign in glory and he will be present and, and show up. And, and he says this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36, which is a very similar passage to what I just read in Mark, but it adds, it says this, so if they tell you he's in the wilderness, don't go out or see he's in the storerooms, don't believe him. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. And it says, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. And we've read a passage similar weeks ago in the gospels where the explanation was, that it will be a sign and be aware where everybody will be able to tell this is what is true and this is what has happened. And Jesus is referring to the end of the age when he arrives again, because we believe as Christians in the second coming of Christ, he is coming back. And we live with anticipation of his arrival and our arrival into eternity with him. That's what we get, that, that's what we're anticipating. We don't live for the present life. We know that as Christians. So Jesus is preparing his disciples and those closest to him that the time is coming. Live and be alert and understand the time is coming. And then we see this in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 33. It says, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on earth among the nations, bewildered by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectations of things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things take begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. And so he's telling his followers, when you see these things happening, look up with anticipation because Jesus is coming. And it's not meant to be for those of us who follow Jesus, meant to be a sorrowful or scary time, but it's meant to be a joyful uh, celebration because our King has arrived. And that's the beauty of Revelation. As we get to that later in this year, we're going to see that the book of Revelation foretells and, and details in a very complex way uh, the the wrath being poured out on sin where J Jesus has the final say, judgment finally arrives on sin and those who have rejected truth. And so for those of us who have crossed the line of faith and declare that Jesus is who he says he is and we are his children and his sons, it's a massive, wonderful celebration. And we arrive and we are protected from eternal separation and punishment. And so Jesus says, look up with anticipation because your redemption is near. Then he told him a parable, look at the figs and all the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. And again, he says, and we've already, like I said, we've already read it, but it's a similar count. In the same way, when you see these things happen, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until this, all things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. Again, reiterating one of the most incredible anticipations as Christians we have is Jesus' arrival and his second coming. And the beauty of it is he doesn't stop there. In Mark chapter 13, 32 through 37, and in Matthew chapter 24, 36 to 51, we're reminded that no one knows when this time will be. And we live in a world where people like to speculate, and we've even in my lifetime have heard of people setting a date. This is the day Jesus is coming, and that day is coming gone. And 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 it draws back to remembering these passages of Scripture. The Mark account says this, uh, Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in the heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or the growing or the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what do I and what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. It's just I just I think the reminder for us today is just to remember we are not living for this earth. We are not living for the the finite temporary human this side of eternity. We're living for eternity and not to get distracted, not to get pulled aside. And I love that the next passage we get to read after this Matthew pass or this Mark passage is Luke chapter 21, 34 to 38 says this, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled by carousing, drunkenness, the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on to all who live on the face of the whole earth, but be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. During the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend night on what is called the Mount of Olives. Then all the people would come in the early morning to hear him in the temple. But I just love Jesus' statements coming out of this Mark passage and the Matthew passage that we're going to read that no one knows when the hour will happen, when Jesus will show up. It's going to happen like a flash of lightning where it shines in the, in the east, where light strikes in, or lightning flashes in the east and all the way goes all the way to the west. We don't know, but we're called to be on our guard. We're called to be alert. We're called to be ready because that time is coming. And, and we end this week's reading in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus tells of three parables and it's a progressive it's it's a progressive point i think Jesus is making in in using or i guess Matthew is making in using these three parables in succession and Ma- and the first portion of Matthew is it's the parable of the 10 virgins the parable here goes where there's 10 virgins who are awaiting the bride groom to show up and draw him into the house for the party the celebration of the, of the wedding and they all have oil and lanterns that because they don't know when the bridegroom is showing up, but they're called to be ready. So they each have lamps. Five of them bring, or 10 of them bring uh, oil, an extra set of oil, just in case they need it. Another set, another the other 10 don't bring oil. And it says in the middle of the night that someone calls out, the, the bridegroom is here, the bridegroom is here, be ready, get ready, the bridegroom is here. And it says that these 10 virgins refilled their lanterns so their lanterns can still stay lit. So when the bridegroom finally arrived, they were able to enter into the house. They were recognized and they were welcomed. It says the other 10 woke up and realized that they weren't going to have enough. And so they asked the ones who prepared, said, hey, give us some of your oil, please. 
And they show up or the, the 10 who had extra said, no, we won't have enough for both of us if we do that. Go buy some and hurry so that way you can be back in time. Well, it says that they went, bought some, came back, but it was too late. The door was already shut. The bridegroom had already arrived, brought in the virgins who were ready and shut the door and locked it. It says these other bride, these other virgins who showed up were knocking on the door saying, hey, don't forget us. We're back. We're ready now. And, and the the owner of the house, the servant said, we don't know you and left them out in darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's this picture of being ready that you and I are the virgins waiting to be received by our bridegroom so we can be drawn into eternity and and live with him forever, happily ever after, if you will, right? Uh, and then after the parable of the 10 virgins, we get the parable of the talents, which I referred to kind of at the very beginning almost. But it's this, this parable of a uh, ruler, a master who leaves, and he gives some talents, in, which is a sum of money to a servant. And some he gave five, some he gave two, and some he gave one. I think that's the breakdown. I could be off a little bit on that. I'm sorry if I am. I don't have it right in front of me. Um, oh, let me, sorry, let me read this at the end of Matthew chapter 25, the end of the parable of the virgins. This is how it ends. It says, when they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. And Jesus' point says, Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. Then he shifts into the parable, and Matthew shifts into the parable of talents, where it's the master goes away, leaves with the the, the servants a, a certain amount of money, and then comes back to, to gather a, a return on the money that they, he lent them, he gave them. First one, just like we read the uh, the nobleman who gave a large sum of money to his servants. Well, the first one doubled his money. The second one doubled his money. And the third one says, hey, I knew you'd be mean and harsh and you reap where you don't sow. And so I just hid your your money in a, in, in a dirt in a hole so I could give you back what was yours. And it says he was rejected. He was cast out into a place of utter darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and it's a passage that we're very somewhat familiar with. Uh, but And this is how the, Matthew chapter 25, the end of um, this parable ends. It says this, his master replied to him, you evil, lazy servant. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gathered where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to one who has more, more will be who has more will be given and who will be given more than enough. But the one who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him and throw his, this good-for-nothing servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's this anticipation of the parable of the ten virgins to be ready for when the bridegroom arrives. And then there's this tension and this call to honor and steward what we've been given while the master is away. So when he comes back, there is a return for him based upon what he's given us. And as followers of Christ, I feel that weight to make sure what I have been given, I there is a return where my life is reflecting gl- the glory of God, where the, my life is able to bring a return of fruitfulness, of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control, faithfulness, and gentleness, but also of people who have been impacted by the gospel, who have crossed the line of faith because of my willingness to witness and step across the aisle and say hi and and, and represent the love of Christ. That That's the tension I feel as a follower of Jesus that I see in Matthew chapter 25. And then at the end of the Matthew chapter 25, starting verse 27, 
we get this parable or this this parable of arriving in eternity and the separating of the sheep and the goats, where this picture of those they enter into, into eternity, and it's it, but it's 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 this master who arrives and he says, hey, you come and enter in because when I when I was thirsty you gave me water when I was hungry you gave me something to eat when I when I was cold you gave me some some clothes to wear and the response of the servants were when did we see those things and it was this picture of when I when you whatever you did to the least of these you did to me and it's those who and then the same goes for those of the goats the ones who are are kicked out who are removed because they they saw the same need but they did nothing with it and that's this picture of eternity where those who enter eternity are those who saw the needs of the vulnerable and they met those needs they did the work of the kingdom versus those who saw the same needs but didn't do anything. It's, again, a call to task that in order to belong to God's family, it requires not just understanding truth, but doing. And we are called to be doers of the word. We're in the series of, of the book of James right now, and we just recently hit this passage where it's important to do what God has called us to do. And we end the book, we end our week's reading with Matthew chapter 25. It is this heavy anticipation of the arrival of the second coming of the Messiah that you and I as followers of Christ today are called to carry. And I would challenge and encourage us as we read not to walk away discouraged or feeling the weight of it, but also feel the weight and the joy of being part of God's family. It's pretty remarkable and pretty incredible. Uh, and so that wraps up the this portion of the podcast. I do want to take a moment and uh, highlight some things that, that I took away, uh, even as I tried to do. But there's one thing I think is really a really big deal. Um, and so we've got a couple. I've got a couple of sections of what we learned today. So I think for Evan's application, uh, it's very simple. It's just make sure you have someone else to record the podcast with you. Uh, Evan, do you agree? I think he agrees too. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I think my application as I've read through this week. Um, I was just really challenged um, by the urgency of Christ, that I really felt this tension uh, and this growing anticipation of not just his death and resurrection, but trying to get as many people ready for eternity as possible, to cross not just the line of faith, this side of eternity, but to anticipate and look ahead to the future. And I really feel that challenge even for me today is just this idea of being focused and ready to re-anchor myself to truth, but also to live according to with eternity in mind, I thought was really important. And I just see it grow out throughout. You see it grow throughout the, this week's reading as it leads us into the next couple of weeks where we see and read about Jesus' death, his resurrection, and also his ascension into eternity once more. Uh, and so, but that's that's kind of what challenged me today. Uh, and I and so I thought it would be fun to to take a moment and highlight that. Um, obviously, I missed Evan this week. It's not the same doing a podcast like this without him here. And so I'm thankful this next week he'll have a podcast. He'll be on the podcast again. We'll be back to our normal rhythm. I appreciate your grace and your flexibility. If you've made it this far in the podcast episode this week. Uh, it has been a, a, a fun a bit of time just spending time with you talking through the week's readings. Uh, I do want to remind you, though, that we are. this is one of the resources of the Grove Church, not the only resource. You can find many of our other resources, resources on our website, 
past messages, um, even some of our, our, our information about upcoming events, um, and even this podcast and a couple of resources on our website, grove.church. Um, and also, uh, it's, if you've found this podcast to be a blessing to you and you would love to consider supporting the ministry of the Grove Church, um, feel free to jump on online and give. There's a give button that you can can give towards uh, just the tithes and offerings or an offering there, uh, just as a way to say this, this is something that's been a blessing to you. We thank you for that. We appreciate that. Um, but I just want to say thank you for being such a great listenership. Thank you for being a part of the podcast this week. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Uh, and we look forward to, and I mean we, Evan and I look forward to talking with you, uh, or t- I guess talking to each other with you listening next week. Have a great day and God bless.